Welcome to a special bonus episode of Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and this episode features an exclusive interview with Professor Martin Marshall, Chair of the Royal College of GPs. I spoke to Professor Marshall last week and we discussed the current media storm around face-to-face appointments, what needs to be done to tackle the workload crisis in general practice, and why he thinks being a GP is still the best job in medicine. The RCGP's annual conference takes place in Liverpool this week and GP Online is delighted to once again be the college's media partner for the event. We'll be reporting all the news from the conference, which you can read on our website from Thursday morning. I'm joined now by the Chair of the Royal College of GPs, Professor Martin Marshall. Along with being Chair of the College, Professor Marshall is a GP in Newham in East London and Professor of Healthcare Improvement at University College London. He's previously held posts as Director of Research and Development at the Health Foundation, a Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England and a Director General in the Department of Health. Professor Marshall took over as Chair as the RCGP in November 2019. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Good to join you. You took over as chair of the college not that long before the pandemic hit. I can't imagine this was how you were expecting to spend your your time as chair of the RCGP. What's it been like being the head of the college during this unprecedented time? Yeah, you're right. It was. Um, I had about two months before the uh, pandemic hit. It was funny, actually, because my predecessor, Helen Stokes-Lampard, sent me a, a good luck card um, uh, when I started. And in that card, she said, I hope you don't have any crises, <laughs> uh, which is rather, rather ironic. Uh, given, given what's happened because in fact we've had two crises really you know we've had the pandemic crisis of course but we've also had a, a a very clear workload and workforce crisis as well which has been building over 10 years but has really come to a head um in in recent months in part as a consequence of the of the pandemic so it's been a really it's been a really interesting experience um i came into the job hoping to address a number of i think key priorities for general practice one of them actually is about workload um, one of them is about uh, promoting, encouraging um, a stronger approach towards relationship-based care. One of them is about supporting practices to work differently. And one of them is about um, shining a light on, if you like, the, the population health improvement role of general practice. And what I think we've managed to do as a college is um, not ignore those issues. And hopefully, um, I think we've done that uh, pretty successfully. So it's been it's been a tough time for everybody over the last 18 months. Um, it's not going to get easy easier with winter coming our way Uh, but it feels to me as if the college has done some really important work in supporting our members. Obviously as you touched on there it's been a really 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 difficult 18 months um, and the last few months in particular have been pretty awful for general practice which we'll come on to in a minute but I imagine despite all of this you probably would still recommend a career in general practice to any doctor so what would you say if you were talking to a doctor at the start of their career now about why they should think about general practice? Yes, I, I talk to to a lot of uh, medical students and um, early career doctors, uh, either thinking about a career in general practice or maybe having started a career in general practice. And I remain um, extremely positive about general practice. I'm I'm clear to them about the realities. It's not an easy job at the moment. I'm also clear that we've seen waves of progressive general practice doing really exciting stuff in relatively easy times and really difficult times in the past. Um, if you look back in historically, the 1960s was really difficult. 
the 1990s was pretty tough. We tend to come out of, of low spells, um, and I'm sure that the same will happen uh, again. What I say to early career doctors is general practice is, is without doubt the most interesting, most varied, most exciting job in, in medicine. And you never quite know what's coming your way. Um, you really do have an impact on people's lives. You work as part of a, a of a primary care team, an expanded primary care team. I still think it's the best job uh, in medicine. Um, I think in particular, it's the best job in medicine if you like people. I often say, um, perhaps slightly stereotypically, if you like diseases, become a disease-based specialist. If you like people, become a GP. And people remain the same. You know, the human condition remains the same. So I think that general practice is a brilliant career. I think it's the toughest job in medicine right now, but I'm confident it'll get better. And I think we're pretty much doing the right things, even though some of the problems look insoluble. I think we're pretty much doing the right things in order to get it into a better place at some stage in the future, sooner rather than later, I hope. I think the pandemic has shown sort of some of the best of general practice, but obviously we find ourselves in this situation now where GPs and practice staff are basically facing kind of a barrage of abuse about access to face-to-face appointments. Why do you think that that's sort of blown up now? And how difficult have you found these sort of media stories as just a practicing GP yourself? Yeah, so the media stories are incredibly uh, frustrating. They're unfair, they're demoralizing. And as we keep pointing out to the media and to um, political commentators, politicians, um, it's seriously damaging and, and threatens to put general practice into a tailspin. Um, if you damage the morale of a workforce which already has low morale, that has consequences. You know, more people will work part, part-time and more people will uh, retire early. Um, I think the issue is is partly, as, as I described earlier, um, a build-up of workload over quite a long period of time, over the last decade at least. But it is, it is also partly related to the pandemic and the way that we changed our working model. And I think if you step back and look at this objectively, prior to the pandemic, we were delivering about 80% of consultations face-to-face. We're now delivering nearly 60% of consultations face-to-face. And in the meantime, we learned an awful lot that about what general practice can do remotely, which previously we didn't think was possible. So it seems to me that a, a drop in face-to-face consultations from 80% to 60% is probably about right. And I'm actually pretty confident that in a year's time, both patients and politicians and clinicians will get used to that fact. Um, remote consultations are here to stay. They're not going to go away. Um, they are an important part of general practice, not necessarily because they're more efficient. Um, in some cases, they're more efficient. In many cases, they're not but because actually they're more convenient, they're more patient-centred, and, and we want to provide patient-centred care in general practice. So you know, I'm confident that people will get used to a different way of working, um, that we will have a reasonable balance between face-to-face and remote consultations, and that those remote consultations, which are mostly on the telephone at the moment, will increasingly be done uh, maybe by video when the technology gets better, maybe text-based. So we'll just have a range of different approaches that allow people to access general practice services. But in order to do that, and this is the most important message, uh, we need a larger workforce, and that fundamentally is important. We're already demonstrating that we can work differently, that we're willing to adapt and flex. Uh, What we also are demonstrating is that the workforce in general practice, both doctors and other health professionals simply isn't big enough to uh, to meet the need. You've recently met the new Secretary of State for Health. Um, do you think the government really understands the problems and issues facing general practice at the minute? And do you think there's a will there to help solve them? I don't think the government has understood the pressures in general practice until recently. Um, 
in part, I guess that's because you know, if you're a politician and every part of the health service is shouting at you saying we don't have enough resources, whether it's emergency departments or, or hospital wards or social care, you know, what, the whole parts of the health and care system are saying they don't have enough. The easiest thing to do is just to shut your ears uh, and not listen to it. Um, the case that we're making in general practice is not necessarily that we're unique in being under-resourced, but if you under-resource general practice, then the rest of the health system will feel it very quickly. And indeed, patients feel it uh, very quickly. So that's the case that we're making. We need greater investment. When I had my meeting with the Secretary of State, I have to say it was it was a, it was a robust meeting. But actually, I thought it was a very positive meeting. He wanted to hear about the problems that general practice are, are experiencing. And he wanted to hear about solutions as well. And when I said to him, the principal solution is a larger workforce, and that isn't going to happen quickly. That's a medium or, or longer term because of the nature of, of building a workforce. But there are some things that we can do in the short term in order to improve the lot of general practice. He was very receptive to that. What sort of things were you talking to him then about what we need to do in the short term? Because like you say, it's going to take a long time to get 6,000 more GPs, 25,000 more staff. So what needs to be done now in the short term to sort the problems out? So there's a number of short-term things that both the college and uh, our GPC colleagues have been talking about uh, for some time. Uh, one of them is reducing the amount of time that we spend on contract compliance, COF in, in particular. So I'm not saying that COF is a bad thing. I am saying that it's a low trust way of managing professional activity. And if you just trust GPs to do the right thing, the vast majority of them will do so. We don't have to spend as much time ticking boxes um, as we do at the moment. So um, stepping back on COF, um, I think um, in the long term, um, NHS England might be willing to do it in the short term. We need to keep lobbying on that, I think is one important uh, thing that we can do. Um, I think that regulation is another one. I do believe that regulation serves a function in healthcare, but I also have said um, consistently uh, to CQC uh, that uh, the current model is disproportionate in general practice. If CQC as a regulator focused on the small number of practices that are really struggling and gave them positive help to get out of the place they're in and left the vast majority of general practices to get on with the job rather than being distracted by regulatory activity, then that would be a very positive thing as well. We've also talked about some of the other things that general practice is responsible for at the moment that could be done by other health professionals, um, in particular fitness notes. Um, it requires legislative change, but there are other health professionals who can sign fitness notes. Let's say, for example, um, musculoskeletal disorders. And physios are hard taskmasters. They're not going to give away um, uh, fitness notes uh, readily. Uh, they could do the job really well. And there are other examples, hospitals discharging patients who had operations. Their fitness notes ought to be provided by the ward staff or the consultants, not telling people to come along to general practice. So fitness notes are another example. Prescribing is another area. I think, you know, increasingly when general practice is under pressure, there are some routine prescribing for long-term conditions that are stable, um, contraceptive pills that could easily be done by other members of the team. At the moment, there are constraints, either for legislative reasons, because some health professionals aren't allowed to prescribe, or because there aren't enough training courses for prescribing, or clinicians don't have enough time to attend the training courses. Those are problems that could be overcome uh, very quickly as well. So I think those are the kind of bureaucratic things, if you like, that could be reduced. And then I think there's a fair amount of workload coming into general practice, which is a consequence of pressures elsewhere in the system. 
handing responsibilities over from acute care into general practice care. It, it doesn't work. It's not sensible. And I, I'm not putting pressure on our specialist colleagues because we know that they're also under pressure. But if we had a system that worked more effectively with better electronic transfer of information, then that would also make a difference as well. So there's some things that could be delivered, um, if not in weeks or months, um, could be delivered fairly quickly. And whilst they wouldn't have a massive impact on our overall workload, they'd at least be making a very strong statement um, from politicians and policymakers to general practice that we're hearing you and we're trying to do what we can to help you. Do you think there was some sign that they might embrace some of these ideas and start moving on them? I certainly had the impression that Secretary of State was was receptive and I hope that he'll be willing to uh, take some positive action. It obviously requires work across the system. It requires the department to work with NHS England. It requires both of them to work closely with professional leaders like us and like the GPC. Um, It's not going to be easy, but I do sense an understanding that something has got to be done. We're in an unsustainable position and we're in a position at the moment that will get worse if we don't take action uh, quickly. And I think that experienced politicians like our Secretary of State understand that, understand that action is required. Do you think that there's there's anything they could do, like coming out, um, sort of showing their support for Gemprax, at least making a statement? Because they've, they've been a bit wary about doing that, it seems to me. They've been quite quick to say GPs should go back to seeing patients face to face and implying that they're not seeing them. But the, there's been very little sort of words of support for general practice from politicians. Do you think that that would go some way to to make GPs feel a bit more valued and appreciated? I think it would it would help a lot. I mean, I think if you spoke to a lot of GPs, they'd say, you know, they don't necessarily hold politicians in high esteem. So, no. <laughs> uh, what, what difference would it make if a politician said general practice is good? Actually, I think it would make a difference. You know, when you're when you feel like you're being got at by certain areas of the media, um, by politicians as well, just a few kind words can make a, a real difference. And I think you're right that politicians, in some ways, have been slightly unwilling to support or defend general practice when what what they're hearing from their constituents is general practice isn't doing its job. Now, what we're trying to do as a professional body lobbying politicians is help them to hear the reality of what general practice is about. And I think I've noticed, maybe I'm being over optimistic, but I've noticed in the last week or two that we're starting to hear more positive things from politicians about general practice, a recognition about what an amazing general practice has done in in keeping the services running, um, keeping patients safe, completely redesigning the way they deliver care, delivering the vast majority of the uh, vaccination programme. I'm hearing politicians saying more positive things and they've got to keep that up. They've got to say it. There's a there's an expression that uh, for every negative message, you've got to have ten positive messages in order to, uh, to 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 get the case across. And I hope that politicians understand that. I saw that you told MPs recently that GPs spend about forty percent of their time on bureaucracy at the minute and sixty percent on clinical work. So if we did start to see some sort of shift in this bureaucracy that we're talking about and cutting back on some of the administrative tasks that you've mentioned, how much does the balance need to shift? How much time should be clinical work and how much admin? Is it 70, 30, 80, 20? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I don't think we know the answer to that question. Just to clarify, when I say that GPs are spending about 40% of their time on non um, clinical activities, that's based on workload survey, which is a few years old now. 
quite difficult to know exactly what it is now. And also important to remember that some of that 40% actually is really important. You know, it's time spent making clinical referrals, uh, for example. That's uh, that's part of our job. But there is a proportion of it, probably a significant portion of it, which is unnecessary uh, bureaucracy, a burden, uh, if you like, and a distraction from face-to-face um, clinical care. And I've said in the past, not necessarily on the basis of evidence, but I think this is kind of finger-in-the-air stuff in some ways, that... Um, if we're going to address the workload crisis in general practice, then at least 80% of the answer lies in a larger workforce and 20% of the answer lies in reducing bureaucracy and changing, if you like, the help-seeking behaviour of patients, supporting patients to access service in different ways and to use um, non-professional services where they can and where it's safe and appropriate uh, for them to do so. So I think the um, the work load solutions that lie outside a larger workforce represent only a small part of the overall problem. And I made that clear to the Secretary of State, but that doesn't mean they should be ignored. They're still important. They're important both substantively, you know, if we could reduce our workload by 10 or 20%, that would be helpful. But also they're important symbolically because it'll demonstrate to general practice that people are listening, that something is being done to help them whilst we wait for the cavalry in the form of more GPs and more other health professionals uh, to come over the horizon. And how much do you think primary care networks could help with all of this? And also, are you worried about the the sort of shift towards integrated care systems in the next year? Do you think that that potentially is going to hamper any kind of improvements because everybody would be so focused on reorganisations? I believe that the the model of general practice that we've traditionally had in the UK, which is local and person-centred, is a really important model. That has to be the, the front end of general practice. That's what patients want and that's what patients appreciate. But behind that, I think the very small scale of general practice has been an impediment to allowing us to develop and expand. So, so I think that the, the future of general practice is, is a small front end um, with an infrastructure underneath it to support activities like education and research and data-driven quality improvement and population health management. So PCNs are one element of that at scale bit. There are other elements as well, federations, uh, larger um, practices. Um, there's, a, there's a whole range of different ways in which general practice can operate at scale. Um, PCNs are much loved by NHS England. I think they serve an important um, function um, at the moment, um, particularly around um, things like the vaccination uh, programme. I think we should support them. Um, I think some PCNs are, are doing amazing work and are mature and have got good leadership and are, and are just really flying. Other PCNs, um, less so. So there's quite a lot of variation uh, across the country. Um, what I do think is that PCNs are going to be one of the working parts of the integrated care systems that is the direction of travel for the NHS. And in principle, at least, I'm in favour of greater integration of care. That doesn't mean that I'm in favour of all the elements of the of the health and care bill. Uh, it doesn't mean that the timing's good. It clearly isn't. Um, but I do believe that integration is really important. I think from a patient perspective, care often feels very fragmented and GPs have to pick up the pieces of that fragmentation. So I'm in favour of greater integration. I think some elements of the bill are in the right place, some of them aren't, and we're lobbying very hard to ensure that the uh, bill is going to be favourable to general practice as well as producing better patient care and better population health. And probably an important element of that is to make sure that the GP voice is strong 
within ICS. It's strong on the uh, uh, integrated care board, but strong throughout uh, the ICSs at a at a high level and also at a local uh, place level. And that's something which, for what I can see around the country, is happening really well in some parts of the country, particular areas where um, the general practice leadership has been embraced by the ICS, but it's weak in other parts of the country, and that's a real worry. It seems like such a huge agenda, though. I totally agree with what you're saying about how integrated care would be better across the board. But it seems like such a huge challenge, particularly in some parts of the country where people I've spoken to are saying they find it really difficult, quite time consuming, putting the work in to, to do this. Yeah, it is. I think we, in some ways we need to stand back from the from the um, immediate issue here, because whenever there's a bill going through Parliament, we get very excited about something. Um, I think the reality is that is that legislation has very little impact on what happens on the ground we're in our practice you know when i'm sitting in my practice in east london do i think about legislation can i think of any legislation in the last 30 years that's had an impact on behavior almost almost certainly not so what this is is a long game and each part of that long game of which this bill is just one small part will produce an evolutionary change along the way so i in some ways i don't think we should get too excited about this particular part of the journey what is it? What we should get excited about is the direction of travel of the journey, which is that integrated care is good for patients and actually it's good for general practice as well. And the most effective integrated systems, if you look internationally, are the ones that put a very strong emphasis on primary care and general practice and actually put a lot of their resources into primary care or general practice. You know, some of the leading systems in Sweden and Israel in the States you know, may be allocating 15 to 20% of their total spend on primary care services, general practice services, and we're spending about 9%. We've spoken a bit about what a challenging time it's been at the start um, when you took over as chair of the college, but I just wanted to to bring a bit more positivity. What's the most positive thing that you can take out of the time you've been chair of the last 18 months in particular? I think the way in which general practice has responded to the crisis and adapted and changed appropriately. Sometimes policymakers complain that general practice is is conservative and resistant to change. Um, It couldn't be further from the truth. The extent to which general practice has always evolved and adapted and been flexible, I think, has been remarkable. But the, the pace at which it's done so over the last 18 months or two years has just been phenomenal. We've got so much to be proud of in general practice. You know, the extent to which we're, you know, we're working at scale, as I say, the extent to which we're um, acting as part of a multidisciplinary team and rethinking the role of the GP within that team, um, the extent to which we've embraced technology, the extent to which we're working more closely with our patients around shared decision making, the extent to which a growing number of practices are really getting into the social determinants of health and addressing health inequalities. I mean, all of that is just phenomenal. And I, I think we've got enormous amount to be proud about and enormous amount to celebrate in general practice. And um, I think it's important that we do so. It's, it's very easy and understandable to get down in the dumps, but there's a lot that we should be very proud about that, that we're doing as a, as a specialty. What are your hopes for general practice over the next year? How hopeful are you that sort of between now and the next RCGP conference in 2022 that um, will have seen a change in that sort of public narrative around general practice? Well, we have to, because if, if we don't, then, um, then the whole of the health service and patient care is in trouble. How confident am I? I think that um, some things will get worse over the next few months. I think the winter is going to be really difficult. You know, with our contribution to the vaccination programme, with um, 
possibly new waves of COVID, certainly highly likely waves of other infections like flu and parainfluenza and RSV and, and others um, uh, with you know, a workforce that isn't growing and the potential of more people um, leaving the workforce. I think the winter is going to be really difficult. Come next spring, I hope that we'll start to see um, an improvement. And I guess our job collectively is to keep our spirits up and to get as much support as we possibly can from the system to allow us to do our job over this difficult period. Um, and I hope that by this time next year, whilst we might not have seen a dramatic change, I don't think we will do because, as I say, workforce is the biggest issue and that takes time to deliver. We will see uh, an absolute um, commitment from the centre recognising the importance of general practice and how the NHS can't survive without general practice and how the public won't forgive politicians if they allow the NHS to um, to go into a downward spiral because they haven't supported general practice. We're talking so obviously ahead of the, the annual conference. Um, I can, can you give us a preview about what you're likely to say in your speech? What, what are you going to be focusing on? What are the themes that you want to bring out this year? So I'm going to be thanking General Practice for everything that it's done. I'm going to be demonstrating the pride that, that we all feel for our specialty, um, the importance of celebrating what we have achieved. Um, I'm going to be recognising the enormous pressures that are going on in uh, general practice at the moment and the importance of getting support from politicians, from policymakers, from uh, NHS leaders. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about the future, what general practice will look like in the next 5, 10, uh, 20 years, in many ways to give a, uh, a sense of hope um, to people who are in the profession now and will still be um, in the profession uh, in the future and want to have uh, a positive vision for where general practice is going. It does sound like you feel quite optimistic about the future. I mean, it must be quite hard in the midst of all these negative stories and in what's been such a difficult time. But do you feel there are glimmers of something more positive ahead? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, I think, you know, one of our jobs as, as a college, as a professional body, is to both reflect the reality of you know what's on the ground, how people are feeling, and the and the very real pressures that they're operating under, but at the same time provide a, a sense of hope about the importance of general practice and where it could go in the future. And getting the right balance between the two is the is the challenging bit. It's the bit that keeps me and my colleagues within the college awake at night. You know, we, as, a, as a membership body, if we're not reflecting what we're hearing from our members, then we're not doing our job. But as a professional body, setting standards, improving quality, um, producing a system that's sustainable for the future, we've got to have a vision and we've got to have some optimism that we can realise that vision. So that's that's what we, we're trying to we're trying to do both things as a college. And hopefully most people think that we're doing so successfully. Thank you so much to Professor Marshall for speaking with me this week. Don't forget that we will be covering all the news from the RCGP conference in Liverpool this week, which you can find on gponline.com. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at gponlinenews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with the usual format for Talking General Practice. See you then.